There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look Then you will see On WCN-TV Friends, Pastor Mike with you again today here on WCN TV. Thank you for joining me. As you can see uh, on the screen, today's conversation is about a, a recent text that I became aware of, Critical Dilemma, Critical Dilemma, subtitled The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. I can't think of a more timely book that the church needs to, to not just um, study, but also teach. I, I, it's, it's the best, I'll say, that I've seen, and I've, I've seen several that have tried to tackle this issue. It is the most comprehensive text that I've seen. And in fact, I'll, I'll ask the authors, uh, Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, in just a moment, if this book has been picked up and used as a text, because I can see that it should be if it hasn't already. But in the last several years, critical theories have invaded government, education, churches, and, and even homes. The confusion, division, new semantics, new, new meanings for new words and new meanings for old words, outright cultural Upheaval is a good way to describe what we see happening. Um, according to the authors of Critical Dilemma, again, Neil and Pat, every Christian, whether liberal or conservative, is being tugged by the swift ideological current of their surroundings. We may not even notice we are adrift. They go on to warn, don't allow yourself to get slowly drugged into apostasy and deconstruction. Now, there's a word that a lot of folks in my generation are unfamiliar with, unfortunately. So in this book published by Harvest House Publishers, the authors connect the dots between this radical ideology and societal decay, explaining where it started, how it has gained a foothold in culture, and defining exactly what it is. They write, to pretend that critical race theory is a harmless, neutral endeavor is wildly naive. CRT will hurt, not help, the church's pursuit of racial unity. And a hearty amen to that. One of the, the, the strong suits of this book 
one of the strong aspects of it is they don't just uh, define it, explain it, give examples in, in numerous disciplines, but they also include in their part three, how do we engage people who have become indoctrinated or, or propagandized by critical theory? Neil Shenvey has an A.B. in chemistry from Princeton and a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. That means he's a really, really sharp guy. He is the author of Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity and is widely recognized for his writing on critical theory, which can be found in journals like Econ and the Journal for Christian Legal Thought. Married and has four children. Pat Sawyer has a BA in psychology from UNC Chapel Hill, an MA in communication studies from UNC Greensboro, and a PhD in educational studies and cultural studies from UNC Greensboro, which means he's a really sharp guy too, and is published in the Academy and in various popular outlets. Married and has three children. Neil and Pat, thank you so much for joining me here on WCN TV today. Glad to be here. So what inspired you, first of all, to take on this subject? Because this is, for some people, uh, it's like a greased pig. How do you even wrap your arms around and, and hold it down long enough to understand exactly what critical theory is in, in all of its manifestations, whether it's, it's feminist or, or queer or black or whatever the case is, what led you to, to, because I see this as a, as a monumental endeavor. And again, I congratulate you because uh, it's the best that I've seen on the subject. What led you to do this? Well, I was, uh, I became a Christian in graduate school and I got deeply involved in apologetics pretty quickly. So I was interested in sharing the gospel with my friends and colleagues, my coworkers who were largely agnostic and atheists, other academics uh, in chemistry. And so I was focusing on the big questions of worldview. You know, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Did he rise from the dead? Does God exist? Things like that. So I was very apolitical. I was not really focused on the culture war, and that was 20 years ago, too, a little different landscape. But I finished my book, my first book, up around 20. 15 or so the first draft. And around that time, I providentially met Pat Sawyer through our church and through a mutual friend. And we just chatted about apologetics. We, the first night we met, we hung out until like 2 a.m. or something. We drove back late at night. But through meeting him and learning about his own research, uh, I learned about critical theory. So he was doing his PhD at the time in education and cultural studies and studying critical theorists and critical pedagogy. And when I talked to him, I realized that what he was studying was what I was seeing in the culture, you know, around 2015, 2016, around the time of Black Lives Matter, I was noticing ideas that I couldn't quite understand uh, what they were saying and where they were coming from, but it was creeping into our culture and into the church at an increasing rate. And I was getting alarmed. So when I talked to him is when I finally connected the dots and realized that we're seeing something, a, a new worldview taking shape and influencing the church. So that's how I got involved. And so in the last five or six years, uh, Pat really helped guide my reading and thinking we've collaborated a lot together, trying to help the average Christian understand these ideas and critique them from a biblical perspective. 
Mike, I've been Pat, how about you? Sure. I've been a believer since about age 18. And when I became a, a Christian, I quickly went to undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill and I began to get involved in some ministries there. I'd not really grown up in a Christian Christian home per se. And I gained an interest in apologetics and I've been doing apologetics on a lay level, uh, speaking about topics like Mormonism and the Watchtower Jehovah's Witness and uh, other sects and cults that are, are pressing against um, biblical truth, heterodox uh, positions. And as I continue to grow in my apologetics understanding on some level, on a lay level, I was involved in that kind of thing. I was a banker for about 20 years. I was in the financial service sector. And about 15 years ago, I felt God pressing me to get more into the arena of ideas. And that led to me retiring from the bank and going to grad school, picking up a job where I didn't have to think a lot, but uh, go into grad school. So I, I got a master's and a master's concentration and then a PhD and a PhD concentration. And my PhD happens to be in the critical tradition. When I was deciding, Mike, what to do, I tried to p think of a knowledge area from two angles. One that would offer some challenge, some strong challenge to the Christian faith, to Christian epistemology, and then also a track that might have some things that might overlap. And so I chose the critical tradition around education, cultural studies. And so this means there was a direct challenge uh, relative to the Christian faith in a lot of ways. But then there was concerns about justice issues. And as a Christian, I was already concerned about uh, certain justice concerns as a believer. And then I also began to see in terms of how I got into uh, writing about this topic relative to Christian context and circles. I began to see a shift in certain ministries connected to broader evangelicalism and then also certain people that I knew. I began to see a shift of people really drawing their identity from their ethnic identity, that their primary identity from a functional standpoint began to be their ethnic identity or their racial identity. And part of my secular scholarship is pushing back against white nationalism, white power groups, uh, offering a strong challenge to those groups. In fact, I've received death threats from those groups because of my published work and my speaking work in, in the secular academy. And so I was concerned, obviously, about alt-white groups that were leaning too heavily into the uh, pushing for a white ethnostate. But then I also saw uh, certain aspects uh, and certain groups, people of color, that were really pushing their ethnic identity. And that becoming, even those that were professing Christians, that becoming the primary functional identity that they were living out of and their their blackness, for instance, or their brownness was becoming so big that was really cannibalizing their identity and their Christian faith, it appeared to me. And that led me to continue to to think about critical social theory and how its ideas downstream from it in woke ideology began to take hold. And then, as Neil mentioned, we met each other and some of our interests began to align around this, and we started speaking and writing about this topic. We went to a apologetics conference at a Southern Baptist Sem uh, seminary there in New Orleans. And coming from that conference several years ago in the airport, I think you know, we decided, hey, we might need to write a book about this if the church doesn't begin to get 
its mind wrapped around these issues and begin to deal with them. And we felt like that while there may been some movement, we saw critical social theory and people believing it starting to double down, triple down. We saw its expansion in terms of its inroads into our culture and to the broader church. And that's led us to write Critical Dilemma. Yeah. Wow. Well, the Lord was certainly uh, moving in that that um, relationship between the two of you and and giving you this idea. Um, I'm old enough to remember the first time that critical theory popped onto my radar. And this is, I'm going to say, uh, probably 30 years or so ago when it was still relatively unknown outside of uh, academia. Um, but you mentioned something, Patrick, and and I'd like for you and Neil both to, to address this. But there are, in fact, social injustices. They, they, they do exist in our culture. Uh, there's no, no reason for us to deny that or try to run from that. Instead, we should be addressing those things, but we should do so, uh, Neil, you mentioned within a, a biblical worldview and, and what's being proposed today or advanced or, or, or the, 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 the narrative today surrounding critical theory and its worldview concerning justice is, is just simply not biblical justice. There's, there's a stark contrast between the two, isn't there? Definitely. Uh, and we explain in the book very carefully, uh, critical theorists see the world. And we argue that it really is a, a worldview, a way of viewing all reality. It offers a meta-narrative, an overarching story, it's like the Bible does. Bible begins with creation and goes to fall, redemption, restoration. Well, critical theory offers a, an alternative story that we're meant to incorporate and see our whole lives in terms of, see our own identities in terms of how we understand truth, where we get truth, uh, our purpose in life, our duties in life. It functions that way. And so you really can't hold on to both a Christian worldview and this woke worldview. They're going to compete. And what we're seeing is as Christians try to hold on to both, inevitably one will win out. They will either move in the biblical direction and slowly abandon the ideas of critical theory, or they will embrace critical theory and abandon biblical orthodoxy, but they can't do both. Yes. Yeah. Pat? Yeah, I would just come alongside and to that and say that we want to keep in mind that, you know, the Bible has its presuppositions, its pre-commitments, its views on morality, how to think about truth. Well, so does critical theory and critical social theory. It, it's an ideology that's got its own presuppositions, pre-commitments, beliefs. And, and so when critical social theory is judging what an injustice is, it is judging it based upon its belief system. And so that judgment is going to be different than how the Bible will consider justice issues because the ideological commitments that critical social theory makes are certainly not identical to what the Bible makes. And in fact, they clash greatly in certain regards. For instance, sexual ethics, biblical sexual ethics are radically different than critical social theory, sexual ethics. And so that would mean, since they're starting from different places, how those two ideas judge what an oppression or an injustice is relative to, say, the gay community, that's going to be a radically different answer and perspective between those groups and our, our those ideas, excuse me. 
So our book tries to get underneath, underneath what is critical social theory really about that's driving how it views the world, like Neil mentioned. It, it is ultimately operating as a meta-narrative and worldview. And so our book is designed to show the distinctions between uh, that robust perspective in terms of a worldview. Because as, as Christians, we obviously have you know, a worldview centered in the Bible, and that's going to be significantly different than a worldview centered in critical social theory. Yes, yes, amen. And, and uh, as part of that new narrative, that new meta that new creation or origin um, comes new definitions, new words, certainly, um, but definitions, new definitions to old words. And, and so folks, this might be the, um, the one area that is most widely recognized is that new words have come into our vocabulary, but also uh, new definitions of old words. I remember 30 years or more ago when James Dobson first came out and he was talking about how, uh, uh, or not Dobson, it was uh, McDowell. It was McDowell. He was talking about how tolerance has changed. The definition of tolerance has changed. And, and I was teaching Sunday school classes then. And I remember uh, that, that transition period and being able to point that out. Now, most folks won't, won't peruse the academic literature, but if they did, they would find all kinds of buzzwords in, in the literature. Um, and words do matter. Semantics matter. What, what are some of those that, that uh, are most prevalent, um, Neil, in, in, a, in the language now, critical theory world, in all of its different uh, permeations? What are some of those words and 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 what do they mean exactly? If I had to pin down a single word at the core of this new vision of reality, I'd say it's the word oppression. If you understand how critical social theory has redefined the word oppression, then so much makes sense of the theory itself. So traditionally, oppression referred to uh, prolonged, unjust, cruel treatment or control, tyranny. We think about oppression, we think about it that way, slavery, murder, rape, you know, groups that are raped and murdered, and that, that, that's oppression. Well, in the 60s, and, and they're quite clear about this, they're explicit, um, the word re oppression was redefined by critical theorists in the 60s and 70s to refer not just to these overt acts of cruelty and tyranny, but to also refer to the subtle, covert ways in which the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or bodied or thin people, the ruling class would impose their values on culture in such a way that those values and norms and expectations appeared to be natural and objective and neutral and even God-ordained. So whenever there's the ruling class imposes their own values on culture in a way that justifies their dominance and their their uh, their their power. Well, that is a form of oppression because it marginalizes certain groups. So uh, whites would be then oppressing people of color by imposing their white norms and values on society. Men would be oppressing women through the patriarchy by imposing their masculine values on society. Uh, Christians would be imposing their Christian values on society. And it, now all of us get socialized into these uh, ruling class values and norms 
And so we don't even realize it. We're all blinded to the reality of injustice. And, and it takes a critical analysis of social reality to unearth the ways that various groups are oppressed. And so it, once you understand that that's how they've redefined oppression, then suddenly you can understand why, for example, uh, critical theorists would say that well, you know our society is just completely white supremacist. Well, they don't mean that people are out there burning crosses on other people's lawns. That they don't they don't mean that because they've redefined oppression and even and racism, white supremacy, to refer not to these overt cruel acts that hopefully we all abhor as Christians. They've now redefined that word to refer to the subtle, hidden ways in which people of color are disadvantaged. Uh, by this supposedly white supremacist society, these systems and structures. So that's that, that key redefinition helps you unlock a whole world out there of other ideas that are deeply, we argue, unbiblical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and the takeaway there, friends, from what Neil just just spoke is try to understand how they mean it, how they've defined it, so that you can craft a response that that perhaps may open more dialogue. It doesn't do any of us any good to resort to um, arguments, to resort to name calling. And and especially this is not the time when the church should be dismissing this because it's eating our lunch right now, friends. I I see it daily in in articles that I read. Uh, The church is not responding well to this. And I, Again, that's why I applaud this book. I, I think if if there was a way to get this book into the hands of a, of a vast number of pastors and encourage them to study this, um, to understand how they can can respond and minister to folks that are really I I'll describe it as being trapped into this ideology, uh, whether it's by deception or or ignorant willingness, it doesn't matter. Uh, Patrick, did you have one that came to mind for you, uh, a term that's been redefined that, that folks maybe need to be aware of? Well, you will hear terms associated with heterosexuality that are now being positioned as an oppression. For instance, heteronormativity, this idea that heterosexuality and heterosexual perspective is normative in society. And heteronormativity is considered to be oppressive in the context of critical social theory because normal or normativity or or normal customs traditions or perspectives or traditional marriage for instance uh, being widespread and pervasive in a culture marginalizes those who are part of the lgbtqia plus community and that marginalization is considered to be oppressive and an oppression well most people walking around would recognize that the vast majority of the planet is heterosexual by far, and that heterosexuality is required for the extension of the species. If if everybody decided to not be heterosexual anymore, our species would cease. So there's an existential threat against the species if heterosexuality is not normative. And so this actually is not really an oppression. Traditional marriage Marriage between one man and one woman is actually righteous and good because God has defined it to be so. And so therefore, it is not, in fact, an oppression at all. And so just because a ideological standpoint says that X is oppressive doesn't mean that it's oppressive. And we need to 
get underneath what these words mean and how they're being used and contextualized to then determine whether we're actually dealing with an oppression or not. Now, we want to keep in mind that if uh, there have been uh, responses to the gay community throughout history and right up to 2023, and at this present moment somewhere, certainly in society, where someone that's part of the gay community might be being brutalized or might be legitimately being done wrong. I mean, those things obviously do happen, and those things would rise to the level of an oppression. For instance, if someone's part of the gay community and he's in the eighth grade and he's being bullied at school and being beat up, well, that obviously is evil and sinful and an, an oppression. So our, our book is strongly against bigotry of any persuasion, but we can't agree to that and, and then make the rhetorical move, the sleight of hand move to now embrace this notion that, well, since this young man got beat up by people who are heterosexual, then that somehow means that heterosexuality intrinsically is oppressive or bad or wrong. That's just emphatically not true. And in fact, the opposite is the case, that heterosexuality is a good, it's a cultural good, it's a societal good, and it's a biblical good. And so we just want to, in a sense, not get bullied into embracing new definitions and perspectives around uh, words just because there's a groundswell of a certain constituency pushing these terms to mean something that's different or in a way that is not actually the case. Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. And of course, folks, the reason why there's this groundswell that's being magnified uh, exponentially by our our media and news outlets, and, and that in itself is intentional. Um, it's a good segue, your responses, uh, Neil and Pat. So thank you very much. Here's a quote from your book. I'm going to read and then that'll lead to the next uh, subject in question. You wrote, to hold that any people group is collectively guilty for the sins of their ancestors, let alone the sins of non-relatives who happen to share their skin tone and supposed, uh, supposedly occupied the same social location is deeply unbiblical. So, we hear repeatedly, even out of the president's mouth and 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 others um, who should know better, talks about white guilt, white supremacy, and they and they do so uh, within this notion of of corporate guilt because we are we are white, we're automatically guilty of of sin or oppression. We need to reject that in the most vigorous ways how do we how do we address that issue yeah we have a whole chapter devoted to the issue of uh, collective ancestral guilt and whether or not it's a biblical concept so we have seen numerous christians promoting some kind of soft idea that by virtue of being white you somehow have this guilt the stain on your soul that needs to be uh, confessed and repented of and uh, often uh, sort of atoned for, not, not in a theological sense, but certainly in like in your, in showed out in your behavior. And we give a whole chapter devoted to why those claims are false 
and uh, they just are not compatible with the Bible view of sin. I'll give you a, just a few brief um, points you can make is that, uh, first of all, uh, there's explicit statements in Ezekiel 18 and in uh, elsewhere in the Bible, I think Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that just say that the, the son shall not be held accountable for the sins of the father. And nor the, it just doesn't work that way. And so if, if you can't, you can't be guilty of the sins of your father, then how can you be guilty for the sins of some great, 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 great grandfather, or let alone some random stranger with the same skin color that you have? That just, it flies in the face of the Bible's teaching. And then just a more rational reasoned argument is just that if you open the door to collective ancestral guilt, you're opening a Pandora's box because what people group has not been guilty of horrific sins in the past. And we, I hesitate to even mention some of the examples, but we talk about I'm, I'm half Indian. Are you going to hold me accountable for the sins of the caste system for the last two millennia in, in India? Are you going to hold Native American Christians accountable for the idolatry of their ancestors, who you know, maybe who are still concurrently worshiping spirits or, or, or objects in nature? Well, that's horrifying. When you are when you become a Christian, you are washed clean of your sin. God holds you no longer accountable for it. And any sins that we commit as Christians, of course, we have to repent of those and seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ if we've sinned against them. But we're not stained by this kind of corporate guilt uh, that that carries over from things that people did long before we were even born. Um, so we, and we make numerous arguments from the Bible that, that that whole way of thinking must be rejected. Yes, amen. Uh, I, I would mention that we, we are careful with the texts that talk about collective guilt. We unpack them very specifically. We pick up on where Daniel, for instance, is, is saying we and us and incorporating himself in the context of repentance when he is uh, speaking for Israel. So we look at the text in the in Scripture very specifically that and all of them that have to do with any type of collective guilt. We also deal with the concept of, of federal headship and we deal with original sin we deal with, you know, Romans 5, what it means to be in the first Adam and then in the second Adam. And we you know, remind our readers that now we're talking about every skin tone that is brought into, for instance, original sin uh, that is represented in the first Adam and then that would be redeemed in, in the second Adam. And so we don't shy away, Mike, from the fact that there is an understanding of collectivism in the Bible relative to sin, but but how that is in, in repentance, but how that is parsed out biblically is very important. And we yes. see the Bible heralding the notion that no one is guilty of sins they didn't actually commit. My guilt in Adam is as, it is if I committed those sins <laughs> in Adam. That that that's the strength of what it means for my representation in Adam. But when it comes to sins in time in space, then people are not guilty of sins that they did not commit. And we cannot lose sight of that because if we do, now we've jeopardized what the gospel's about. And, yes. and what the gospel actually is, you know, these things cannot be separated out from one another. The, the gospel will fall if we have radical confusion around, you know, hermetology and how to think about sin and guilt. And so 
our book is very careful about that. And we certainly underscore that if a, a white person has sinned against someone who is black racially, or if a black person has sinned against someone who is white racially, and it's certainly possible for both to sin each other against each other racially, then there should be repentance. Absolutely. And repent of that sin that you have committed without question. But let's don't get confused about onboarding and importing some type of historical oppressor notion. And Mike, you touch on it. There have been places in evangelicalism where national leaders have talked about whites being historical oppressors now. They're onboarding that guilt that took place by whites of others in the past and then layering it onto whites in the present. And they're using a sleight of hand by incorporating this notion of complicity and then overstating what that actually means. And then now laying guilt upon the person who happens to be white in the context of that church in a modern moment. And that is disaster when it comes to actual, true, biblical unity and connection among the brethren in a diverse, ethnically diverse church. And so we unpack all of those things, and hopefully it will be of help to our readers. Those who have read the book in advance and appreciated the very thing that you're bringing up here, Mike, in terms of this topic, our attention to care about it. Yeah. Yeah, an impressive list of those who wrote an endorsement for the book, um, very happy to see that broad, broad spectrum of uh, theological thinking and, and perspectives. Um, you write that we have made significant progress in, in race relations in, in the last 50 years um, in this nation, but, but critical theory proponents um, would disagree with that and do and suggest that um, racism is endemic in our in our culture. And that's one of the things that, that, that you address to try to show that that that's not true. And to your point, Pat, that you just made, it's it's heartbreaking for me to see uh, ministry leaders, well-known pastors embrace what is really critical theory when they have. Uh, the scriptures to stand on to show that that worldview is is anathema to Christianity, and we should not be importing that into Christianity. So, so what do we do about that? Um, how do we, other than read your book, <laughs> which is which is a great thing to do, friends? And again, I, I am speaking with authors Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. Um, the book is Critical Dilemma. Um, it really is a clash between Christian orthodoxy on so many subjects. Um, critical theory is very actively undermining and eroding the foundation of, of orthodox uh, Christianity. So, so I guess my question uh, out of all of that, brothers, is this. Did do you think that uh, the Supreme Court's recent ruling on uh, affirmative action, um, does that signal to you that we're arriving at a place where, where students are going to be admitted based on merit? Or 
is this just one more uh, example that critical theorists will point to to say, see, racism really is systemic, endemic in our culture and in our institutions. And that's another example. So how do you see that, that recent ruling? Critical race theorists in particular will absolutely see the ruling as a proof of their theories, that this is what happens when there's any kind of racial progress. There's immediately retrenchment, there's immediately reversal and, op and opposition by the white ruling class to, to get rid of racial progress. So they would see the Supreme Court ruling as uh, it just, just proving that their theories are right. So it's another example of the white ruling class rolling back the progress that, that activists and anti-racists are trying to make. And the, the reason they see it that way is because they view, uh, th they are uh, critical of what's called procedural justice or procedural equality. Uh, critical race theory from the beginning has questioned, in their own words, the very foundations of the liberal order, things like civil rights discourse, um, equality discourse. They would say those are all disguises by which the white ruling class preserves the status quo. Mm. So instead of seeing, so they, they would not want people treated equally. They would want what's called equity, which they define to mean uh, differently situated groups being treated differently in order to achieve just outcomes. And they would generally define just outcomes as one in which every group is equally represented. So Ibram X. Kendi is a prominent anti-racist author, says very explicitly that whenever there are any racial disparities of any kind anywhere, the only cause is racial discrimination, period. And if you disagree with that statement, he would call you a racist. He, I mean, this wow. is in his book. He's it's a simulationist racism. So because of that, the only solution then to the problem of racial inequity, meaning different outcomes, is, he says, again, racial discrimination in favor of the oppressed group to ensure that there is racial equality of outcome. So, yeah, so they would see any uh, infringement on the push for racial outcomes to be equal as a way to perpetuate the racial status quo. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't think it's going away. I, it's, a, it's sort of a first principles thing in their minds. They, they can't, uh, they, they can, can't, they don't accept the idea that there can be um, harmless or neutral racial disparities. And by the way, we totally agree there can be unjust racial disparities. It's possible, of course, to have actual discrimination. We actually give examples of it in our book of careful experiments showing, for example, that uh, black job applicants are discriminated against relative to white job applicants with all other things being equal. And that there are studies showing that. But we, 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 where we differ from critical race theorists is assuming that all disparities are only discrimination. That is just obviously false. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That goes too far. Neil. Uh, Mike, I was going to oh, go ahead. Okay. So, sorry, Pat. It's just one clarification, Neil. You mentioned uh, a book. Was it? Was the title Simulation is Racism? Uh, by Ibram X. Kendi? Yes. Oh, he wrote a book called um, How to Be an Anti-Racist and also a book called um, Stamped, Stamped from, the from the Beginning. Yeah. What, what the, was that second one? Stamped from the Beginning. It's a history Stamped of ra yeah, racism in the U.S. I, okay. Parts of that book actually were pretty interesting. Uh, parts of it were completely <laughs> actually wrong. But 
you know, we try to really, we've, we've referenced over 200 primary sources in this book related okay. to critical social theory. We really did a lot of careful reading and we quote extensively from the authors themselves. We wanted to give them their due to represent them fairly in their own words. And so yes. that you couldn't be accused of not listening, of, of, of dismissing them. We wanted yes. to really be fair. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. I'm sorry, Pat, go ahead. Well, I was just going to concur and dovetail with something that Neil said that when I was in my PhD program, we had a class that was really centered around it. And ultimately the discussion became centered around the fact that we need unequal treatment in order to bring about equal outcome. And so that we must engage in unequal treatment if we want authentic, expanded equity for all equal outcomes. Mm. And that kind of runs counter towards how most people would think about yes. how to run a, a society, you know, mm. and that racism historically has, has been rooted in the fact of unequal treatment of people groups. And so, but this, you know, Kendi and, and others that are involved in anti-racism discourse very out front that there's a sense in which we do need to embrace unequal treatment to make things better now and to make sure that everyone has equal outcomes, make sure everyone has equity. And that equation, while it does offer us some, uh, it, it does remind us to think through how uh, egalitarianism or equal opportunity discourse or even something adjacent to it like colorblind ideology, this idea of not seeing color. The anti-racism discourse does push us to make sure that we are not concealing racism in the context of this kind of discourse, that we are uh, not failing to, to be wise and thoughtful. For instance, colorblind ideology would put forth this notion of not seeing color. Well, not seeing color is not necessarily the way to go if you're a person of color and you want to be seen and you want your cultural perspectives to be celebrated and acknowledged. So there can be flawed perspective, and Neil and I would agree, uh, flawed perspective around pushes around egalitarianism or colorblind ideology or this notion of equality it, but we we also underscore that we cannot embrace this notion of unequal treatment as a way of being that that will run us headlong into a lot of issues. And back to your point, critical race theory, in order to keep this perspective present, then they have to make the case that racism is permanent, mm -hmm. pervasive, endemic. It has not gone away. It has only changed in how it is manifested, but it is just as strong essentially as it's ever been. This that kind of perspective has to be part of the discourse if we're then now going to combat it by uh, embracing unequal treatment and advantaging those who have been disadvantaged in the past. So now they can have full equity in the present. Mm 
And so in order to maintain that perspective, then critical race theory does have to, as one of its primary ideas, push for the notion that, yes, racism is permanent, pervasive, everywhere, deeply embedded in our societies, institutions and systems. And since it is, then we have to have this approach of unequal treatment leading to equal outcomes. Yes, yes. Outstanding responses, brothers. I appreciate that. Now, folks, don't think that critical theory is is focused exclusively on race because it is not. And um, Neil, Pat, you, you do a, a great job of bringing out the other areas that that critical theory touches and is using today to change uh, uh, the thinking of of our culture, of our society. Uh, you, you include a chapter on queer theory, and this may be news to some folks. Um, so in explaining that within critical theory, um, I'd also like to hear your thoughts on uh, what does queer theory, how does it, uh, to, to borrow one of their words, how does it intersect with gender studies and, and feminism, for example? Yeah, queer theory is one of many critical social theories. We in our book we focus on two critical race theory and queer theory, which are the probably prevalent critical social theories that are impacting our world today. But there are others like postcolonialism, uh, intersectional feminism, critical pedagogy that are impacting everything from international affairs to uh, to gender roles and thinking to to, to education. So. We just want to make sure that they understand that it's an umbrella category of critical theory with many different applied subfields. Well, queer theory takes the ideas of critical social theory and applies them to the areas of gender and sexuality. And the big, huge idea within queer theory is that gender is an oppressive social construct that must be dismantled. Uh, because it's sort of um, it's a, it's, it's imaginary. It's created by human beings in order to oppress and marginalize people seen as outside of the gender binary, or whose sexual practices are seen as deviant and wrong and other. So they want to dismantle all of that to remove all constraints on sexual behavior, uh, on gender roles, on the very idea of gender itself. They want to dismantle the gender binary, for example. So that they can have essentially can liberate people to live a life of authenticity, however they see fit, to, to express their sexuality, to express their gender, however they want. That's the sort of motivating idea behind queer theory. And they, they do that in several ways. One is they draw a sharp division between the, the sex and gender. Sex they would define as biological sex related to things like your chromosomes, your secondary sex characteristics like your facial hair. That's biological, but gender, they would argue, is a social construct. It's a category that society assigns you to, so you get gendered as male or female. And they'll say that's, number one, they're not connected. There's no connection between sex and gender. And then number two, the, even the notion of these only two categories is oppressive, that there are many categories of gender. There could be two, three, or four, or a hundred, or a million different genders. Gender is something that you act out. It's the idea of gender performativity. You're not actually in a category. You act out and produce the effect of gender by how you dress, by how you talk, by the assumptions that you make. Anyway, so now this gender theory, it, it's, it's in its purest form, it really is 
relegated to academia. So that you know, Judith Butler is probably the most prominent gender theorist, queer theorist in the world today, and her writing is impenetrable. No one, no one outside of scholars probably reads it. But what we're seeing today is the downstream effect of her theories and her thinking that's now penetrating into culture. So you're beginning to see, you know, Disney shows, uh, cartoons, ads, movies, mm-hmm. music that are all incorporating her ideas without even realizing it, and and often even Christians will slip into talking in ways that reveal that they are imbibing this idea, these ideas without knowing where they come from. So uh, yeah, that's a broad overview of what queer theory uh, promotes and then how it's getting into our culture and church. Yes. Pat? Like I would just mention, you want to think of queer theory in context. So historic critical theory is about power. It's about how to understand power being manifested in society, who has it, who doesn't, and why. And so historic critical theory began in the 1920s in the Frankfurt School, School of uh, Institute of Research and Social Science in Frankfurt, Germany. And those theorists, again, were thinking about how power is being manifested in society and our customs, norms, traditions, our ways of being. If we fast forward to today, we think of uh, the broad term critical social theory, which is an expansion and an amendment to historic critical theory. And historic critical theory from the 1920s is an expansion and an amendment to Marxism. And so critical social theory today is an expansion and amendment of historic critical theory. And that is best understood, as Neil mentioned, uh, incorporating a number of critical theories, critical social theories that, again, are dealing with power, how power is manifested in society, who doesn't and who's who doesn't have it, who's left out of it, and who has been marginalized and disenfranchised. And one of the primary roles of critical social theory is praxis oriented, social justice oriented, activist oriented. Its approach is to not only describe current conditions, but also to prescribe a vision for society that emancipates those and gives power to those who have been marginalized and disenfranchised. And queer theory is making the case that the gay community has been left out of power, been marginalized and disenfranchised. And so efforts in queer theory is to deconstruct uh, heterosexual norms and perspective that are pervasive in society, deconstruct those norms, turn them on their heads, and then now marginalize, uh, uh, excuse me, empower and enfranchise those in the gay community have been, that have been left out of heteronormativity uh, perspective. And then now to make queer perspective to be normative and to be celebrated. You mentioned tolerance earlier, that term that was really problematized years ago, where tolerance now means to be to celebrate something, <laughs> mm-hmm. not just to tolerate it, you know, not just to go, well, I don't agree, but I'm going to allow you to have that perspective. No, now the expectation is to be celebrated. And so the push of queer theory in our ads, in our movies, you know, advertisements in movies, in uh, a number of um pushes in terms of our culture, in terms of legally, legally to try to to uh, make homosexual marriage legal, uh, all this push, and again, is in an effort to normalize queer perspective, to give power to the queer and gay community that they have not had under heteronormative conditions. And so that deconstructive project will be massive 
coming yeah. from critical theory and downstream, as Neil mentioned, from scholars like Judith Butler, downstream from the academy, things will be landing in culture and time and space on the ground. And so when we see Drag Queen Story Hour getting, you know, some traction in our culture, what is going on there? Well, that's an effort to normalize trans and queer and drag perspective to, to make the, the push of queer theory to be more palatable to more and more people to make it more normalized in our society. Yeah. Pat, a follow-up question, Pat, to what you just said. Um, is this, is the deconstruction of all norms um, through queer theory is, is that, I mean, I'll give you my opinion after you answer and I'll go to you, Neil, after this, but is that leading or opening the way for legalizing pedophilia? Yes, it is. We don't want to be wrongly sensationalist or alarmist or, you know, just being an alarmist kind of perspective. So we, we do want to be careful here. And I do want to say that a good segment of the gay community would say that pedophilia is wrong. It's evil and people should be in jail. So let's say that clearly with that said, absolutely. The literature of queer theory, the scholarship, the scholarship of queer theory certainly uh, allows for the notion of changing how we think about age relative to sexuality. And so there has been, you know, Michel Foucault is really a a father of queer theory. And he pushed in in France for the dissolution of laws, age limit laws on sexuality. And so part and parcel to that deconstruction project of queer theory will be a consideration of of how we think about the uh, issues around age. And, and what we think about age and what, and should we deconstruct how we think about what is age appropriate? And you see some of the, the, you, we've talked about language on this show and, and how language is manipulated. You know, we, we see new terms and new phrases like minor attracted person. Yes. You know, that being part of the discussion around pedastry and, and pedophilia and, so a natural outworking of the knowledge area would be sympathetic to what we, what, what, what is typically defined when I say we, what is typically, I say we, I'm talking about broader culture, would typically define as pedophilia. And we quote extensively, you know, period around critical social theory, but we also have quoted scholarship around this very topic. And, and Neil, you may want to say for more about it. I just had two things. First is that remember from critical social theories perspective, uh, all these norms are, are masks for oppression. There are ways that we justify disempowering people. Well, think about the idea of an innocent child. Oh, but children are innocent. They're not sexual beings. Well, of course we say that we're depriving them of sexual agency, the right to choose their own partners so that that's their way of seeing it. The other thing, so that's unavoidable. If you see the world through a critical lens, you're going to question all norms, including norms of around age of consent, for example. But the other point to make is that once you have gone, as we have as a culture, to say that you know male and female are are just they're they're social constructs. This it's the gender binary itself, the social construct. If you can't tell what a man is and what a woman is, 
well, then how are you going to argue? But eight, but children and adults, that's a firm line. Mm-hmm. It, there's a much more blurry line between when does a person become an adult? 18, 16, 17. Cultures obviously vary on that. You know, there are probably 13-year-olds in some countries that are doing a working to support the family and caring for their younger siblings that are acting like adults in our culture. So once you've once you've already bought the idea that we can't even tell what a man is anymore, what a woman is, well then how are you gonna distinguish between children and adults so carefully? Oh, you can't absolutely transgress this one line. I'm sorry, that's not gonna just rationally make much sense. So that's the danger of deconstructing these norms is that there's no really good stopping point. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I knew we would be in this situation where we would only scratch the surface of, of your book. We've got just a, a couple of minutes left. And I, I do want to at least uh, have both of you address part. Part three is engaging in engaging uh, those that are proponents of, of critical theory, engaging folks in our culture that maybe don't understand. And I think what, what you gentlemen have shared with our audience today has been very, very valuable. Uh, but in it, uh, part three, engaging chapter 13, ideas that will devastate your church. Um, you've already touched on people of color in the U.S. are oppressed. Sin is oppression. Straight white males need to listen. Um, I heard that uh several years ago in when we were going through uh, all of the riots and and the destruction that was going on that white people needed to just shut up and listen you've had your time to speak now it's our turn to speak Um, why is that not acceptable uh, in our culture and how can we respond to that kind of criticism we say in the book, it's fine if people want to say, you know, be slow to speak, quick to listen. I mean, the Bible says that. I'm, I'm fine with everyone just listening. Right? That's okay. Uh, what we have a problem with is saying you can only listen. You can never push back. You can never say this is unbiblical. If you'd cede that kind of authority to anybody, whether they're white or black or male or female or purple or orange, that's yes. going to go badly because the Bible has to be our only standard for ultimate authority. And as soon as you cede that authority to anyone or anything else, regardless of race, class, or gender, it's going to end badly. So we just insist that absolutely uh, be slow to speak, quick to listen. But in the end, everybody, you and I, need to come come under the authority of God's word. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I would just mention this is connected to standpoint epistemology. So we we get into uh, this in our book. It's this idea that in critical social theory, lived experience is really elevated. And the lived experience of people of color, according to critical social theory, gives them special insight into social analysis. And that if you're white, you have a diminished sight, a deficient sight. And so critical social theory makes the move that it's the quality of the identity of the person offering the idea that is more important than the quality of the idea. And so that is horrendous. And then we make the case that it, it can exist where you have a white pastor who has do is um, duly has authority in the context of his church where he is leading around issues of race and matters of race that just because he happens to be white and male, that doesn't mean that his perspective at all is deficient. 
And because the Bible has that truth, that epistemological reality has empowered him to speak into the issues that are part and parcel to his church. Now, that doesn't mean, Mike, that someone who has had racism take place in their life, a person of color in that church, then they might could speak to some things in a very uh, unique way and in a insightful way that that pastor would certainly uh, give room for that person to weigh in and speak. Obviously, that would be the case. But this idea that a white person should just sit down, shut up and listen only and exclusively, well, that that's an epistemological standpoint that's just false and it's just made up in critical social theory. It is not actually true. And, and so our our book will help people see these dynamics and take away some of the intimidation factor so yes. they don't feel bullied into just going along with ideas that are actually spurious and deficient. Yes. Amen. It's a fantastic book, friends. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Critical Dilemma, the Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Pat, Neil, thank you so much for sharing with our audience today uh, your thoughts and, and uh, what went into the, to the writing of the book. It is a job well done, brothers, and I thank you for that. Thanks, thank Mike. you, Mike. You're very welcome. Folks, that's all we have for you today. Please share this on your platforms and among your friends. Help them to understand critical theory, what it is and how it is impacting America, because it is in a very, very large way. We'll see you next time here on WCN-TV. God bless you.